I think that's another sort of story to tap into, which is this idea of reinvention, not just sort of fantasy, but actual, you know, designed reinvention. Mm -hmm. And I think we could think about updating that. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here with Eric Howler, an architect and educator whose work deals with technology and the public realm. Eric joins us today to discuss his work and redesigning the American dream. Eric, welcome. Thank you. So you've been working most recently on a studio and research project focusing on Miami with respect to questions of, uh, of housing. Uh, tell us about the studio. So um, we're looking at Miami as a city, but also through the lens of housing and specifically through lenses of uh, climate adaptation, mobility, and to some extent affordability. Uh, Miami does seem to be on the kind of front line of climate change. Um, it is a city that will experience extreme weather, extreme events, probably first. It's already happening in a way. It's happened for a long time. Uh, but it does seem to be sort of entering into the kind of public consciousness of one of the cities that will experience this first and most directly. And so in terms of identifying research areas, it does seem like a very productive place to focus some energy. As you mentioned, you know, uh, Miami is as much in extremis as any American city. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Miami Beach has water in the streets on a regular basis. They're now spending hundreds of millions of dollars to um, elevate streets and pump and pipe and make themselves adaptable. How is it that you imagine housing the instrument or one instrument among many to address some of those challenges? Yeah. And one of the things that the premise was that uh, so much of the city fabric is at risk and so much of the city is kind of sprawling in this sort of undifferentiated grid. When we look at, you know, how to have a kind of systemic sort of uh, impact, we can design individual buildings or we can design sort of prototypical solutions. So one of our premises is let's let's focus on the fabric and not the, not the figures. I think sort of pedagogically that's an interesting take. So housing as the kind of basic sort of backdrop of the city, it seemed like a fruitful way to start. So, it strikes me that what you're saying about work in Miami is a particular frame for the architect, right? So it's it's not simply working through policy and zoning. It's not simply through the, the regulatory mechanisms or the development community, which are all important, but it has more to do with the idea of the role of the architect in imagining housing as something that's uh, replicable or, or prototypical or even vernacular. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think we have been looking at both the existing sort of fabric, what's there, what's what's sort of built sort of without the hand of the architect, uh, but also thinking about how the architect can influence that condition. In the kind of introduction to the studio, I made the differentiation between house and housing. You know, in the States, we talk about houses a lot, and the houses seem tied up with an idea of what a kind of American dream might be. Uh, we don't talk too much about housing. You know, it implies a kind of collectivity that seems sort of run counter to this idea of individuality. But I did borrow explicitly from Reinhold Martin's sort of Buell hypothesis that accompanied the foreclosure show at the Museum of Modern Art a few years ago, where uh, he says, well, if the dream is such a powerful uh, motivator for cities, you know, we could argue that so much of what we see in the American sort of urban landscape is a function of this aspiration. He says, you know, to redesign the city, you have to redesign the dream, which is a kind of powerful way to think about it. So not only are we sort of trying to find sort of types and, you know, solutions, but we're also trying to put forward a kind of alternative image of what might be aspirationally a kind of new dream. And it might include questions of density and connectivity, uh, not just questions of territory and, and privacy. In some ways, you know, my, my experience in Miami has been that 
People are already imagining different futures. I mean, there's a different generation, first of all, of people moving to Miami. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, just beginning with the fact that in spite of the, the climate contingencies, in spite of the lack of affordable housing, in spite of the mobility challenges, they can't build it fast enough, both for domestic and international audiences. And you point, I think, quite rightly to the, the kind of uh, contradiction in a way, the condition of the vast majority of Miami being single family homes in that uh, kind of prototypical, you know, it's, it's for you know, the vast majority of people, their single biggest asset. It's also a part of their realization of a certain middle class lifestyle. And at the same moment, the coasts, especially just soaring with these kind of vertical towers that are primarily about occupancy by people who are living elsewhere in the world, right? So so is your transect dealing in any way with the discrepancy between those two conditions? Yeah, I mean, we we're hoping to develop a, a spectrum of prototypes that would be applicable in different scenarios. And we found that there's a, a kind of a cliff, you know, between the high-rise coast and the kind of low-rise. There's no mid-rise to mm -hmm. speak of. And so introducing a mid-rise type that could sort of take hold seems productive. Mm -hmm. I do think, you know, to get to this question of the American dream, it's like a, a dream for whom? You know, Miami, as you know, is such an immigrant city, a city of people coming in waves, not just, you know, the Cubans um, from the 60s and 70s, but it's still a kind of dream uh, destination. And uh, I don't know if you know, but I, I grew up in Colombia in South America. And so I often say, like, Miami for me was America. You know, when I arrived in the States, that was America. And you can think about all of Latin America sort of coming to this point of entry and sort of discovering, you know, this is America, you know, the shopping mall, the Sears, the Howard Johnson. And so very personally for me, um, Miami represented America in a, in a particular way. And I think for many people it does. And so what is that image that they're imagining, what they're longing for, what they're aspiring to? I think it is an opportunity to reframe that, that dream. It's not a prototypical American dream. It's a particular one, you know, maybe more tropical, maybe more more verdant, you know, maybe more dense, mm -hmm. you know, and if we can sort of come up with something that offers an alternative to that sort of low density kind of sprawl that we sort of know, mm. I think that would be a real, mm. a real finding. It's, it's, it's well put. So you, you mentioned, you know, Miami's origin as one of the places in the Venn diagram between the, the tropics and American jurisprudence and economics and rule of law. And I think that's still a part of its identity. It's true as much as any other American city that I'm aware of, you know, Miami has built itself through neighborhoods that maintain their kind of architectural legibility through ethnic identity or racial identity. And, and that, you know, the little Havanas and the little Hades and, you know, the, the idea that as much as any other city, Miami has decided to preserve itself, preserve its architectural identity as a part of a cultural identity. Mm -hmm. Does that produce any particular challenges in working in that context? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. We spend a lot of time in Little Havana. Uh, our transect is on, you know, Cayo Chum, which cuts right through Little Havana, nice. all the way out to the Everglades through the Miami Trail. And that was a deliberate choice to sort of pick a, a transect that's kind of famous for, you know, its different neighborhoods, different communities. Uh, it also has a kind of historic connection, you know, that was the street that went through the Everglades to connect to, to Tampa. Mm -hmm. So there are neighborhoods that are much lower, you know, and neighborhoods that are on high ground. So those subtleties, I think, are, are very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. Sort of amplifying those, I think, will be part of the analysis. Mm -hmm. But when we were there, we did spend time in Domino Park and, and different neighborhoods. And then we went down to Coral Gables and tried to sort of, sort of taste test, you know, some of these different neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. I, I do think there's differences in the way people use space, you know, just watching people interacting in, in the public realm. I think that's something that the students were sort of clued into. Registering some of those uh, specificities of kind of architecture and human behavior, I think, is, is part of it. 
Uh, and so many of these things are, are cultural. That is part of the, the calculus as students are processing, you know, some of this design questions. Mm. But I, I do think, you know, even as you drive, you know, some, sometimes the street goes up quite subtly and you start to pick up on some of those subtleties. Uh, it is true. It's a very subtle, very horizontal landscape, but ultimately reading that landscape becomes an important set of skills. The number that always comes to my mind is the the crown of the main runways at Miami International, I want to say are plus eight feet above mean sea level based on certain models. Like, Yeah. I mean, I think where is the ground is a, is a good question. You know, I was reading Joan Didion's book on Miami and she's she makes a comment about, you know, the architecture had become kind of unmoored, you know, and in this kind of uh, landscape that's sort of provisionally called ground or mm -hmm. called solid, you know, mm -hmm. making claims to solid ground. And I think so much of, of what you experience in Miami is a, a kind of sense that the ground isn't really as solid as, as you might think it is mm -hmm. and, and more provisional. That's right. uh, and I think that could be a launch point for the students as well to think about, is this the ground or do we need to build it or do we need to duplicate it? In, in some of the downtown areas, we, we toured the Swire project, the uh, Brickell City Center, which I have a theory that it's basically an Asian sort of city sort of transplanted here. But I think there's a lot to learn from Asian types, you know, this idea of sort of multi-block connectivity, uh, multiple grounds, multiple datums, connection to infrastructure, high density. So there's many things that are appealing about that. Mm. Uh, even question of ground, I think, is a good starting point. And as we think about the streets flooding and having alternate streets or duplicate streets, it doesn't seem completely wrong to me that we could plan for multiple levels. If you look at the history of the American city, you know, cities like Seattle or Chicago have radically transformed their relationship to ground over the course of a generation or two. And, and in that context, I mean, I, I've come to think of Miami not so much as um, an apocalyptic uh, condition, but more so a, a cultural choice. And from a kind of you know empirical point of view, I wonder if you'd agree with this. It's not a rational choice to build there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a product of desire, among other things. Mm -hmm. And yet now having built it for a century, I can't imagine a world without it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, think of all those, think of all those dreams um, <laughs> and, and all those fantasies. Yeah. I mean, I love thinking about like the, you know, the early days of Miami and sort of competing with, with other destinations for winter escapes and, you know, how do you kind of reinvent yourself, you know, it does have a tremendous appeal. And then the architecture sort of provides a kind of backdrop, you know, this sort of fantastical architecture of Morris Lapidus and these sort of grand stairs and things. And so I think that's another sort of story to tap into, which is this idea of reinvention, not just sort of fantasy, but actual you know, a designed reinvention. Mm -hmm. And I think we could think about updating that, you know, what, what was it like in the 50s, what technologies were available in terms of conditioning environments, sort of creating artificial worlds. Okay, what's available today? How do we sort of speculate about this moment and a kind of larger scale reinvention of a city? But, you know, if you think about Venice and the kind of importance of, of that and the, the way that it's absorbing Aqualta into part of its culture, I think some people are saying, well, maybe we need to just learn to live with this and design for this, the way that Venice has these sort of multiple, <laughs> multiple grounds, you know, different to, seasons of water. Yeah. 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 Maybe it needs to become more seasonal. I mean, I think so much of like, if you think about Le Corbusier's sort of um, uh, standard temperature, standard conditions exported all over the world, you know, 17 degrees, <laughs> uh, respiration exact, you know, mm -hmm. that attitude sort of characterized so much of the 20th century. Now maybe we need to sort of unlearn that and sort of think about different states, different thermal gradients, you know, different degrees of, of humidity. And I think that would sort of 
ease in a way the kind of specification for so much design, so much architecture. Uh, so I'm interested in what you're saying about the American dream and Miami's role historically in conjuring the good life or conjuring the desire. I think it's true what you say that at various moments historically, architecture has been mobilized in Miami to illustrate that, you know, manifest that desire. And then it's been mediated, right? In my, in my era growing up, it was it was television broadcast, right? It was Jackie Gleason and it was, you know, and in another moment it became film again and now music video and these kinds of things. Nice. So I wonder if there aren't ways in which the architectural imaginary can't be deployed in your work and in your students' work yeah. to, to motivate our desires. I grew up with Miami Vice from Colombia, yeah. dubbed in Spanish. Uh, so, I mean, television did contribute to that sort of that imaginary. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of these super powerful you know, broadcasts could be sort of updated, could be uh, updated for a new, a new Miami. So, yeah. yeah. We were speaking with Lorinda Spear and her work uh, with her partners in Architectonica in building Atlantis. I don't know if you remember if, the, if, if you received this in, in Columbia, but I know as a student of architecture in Florida at the time, you couldn't escape that Atlantis, it was possible through speculative real estate development to build a project that audacious. And that was in the opening credits of Miami Vice, and yes. architecture was somehow uh, playing a role in that imaginary. Yeah, I mean, we launched the, our semester uh, studios with uh, research and precedents. Students sort of all selected housing projects that they were interested in, a whole spectrum of different typologies. And I insisted that someone look at the Atlantis because I've always wondered how did that courtyard get in there with the two means of egress, like where are the cores? Like I want to know. And so one of our students did find the plans and sort of do the analysis to show how you introduce a kind of opening into a bar building uh, to produce that unique moment. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do think uh, as part of our research, another point to say is like we often think of, you know, we're encouraging students to be innovative and, and come up with novel solutions, but it's so important to do the work and to look at what's been done. You know, how was it done? And look at the plans. I mean, it's easy to Google an image and sort of speculate, but I'm very interested in how those plans work, where the fire stairs are, you know, how does it actually function? Your Instagram feed is filled with fire <laughs> exit plans, which I've come to now look for everywhere I go. Yeah, it's a great resource. I mean, people ask me like, why do you post exit plans? But it's fundamentally, you can understand the organizational logic of a building. So I think students, it's important for them to know what's possible and how to achieve those things. You know, it's the, the precondition for design is understanding those parameters. So it's kind of, it's become a kind of thing, but it started off as a kind of, this is useful. We need to know this stuff. Absolutely. So, so it's, you're having your students draw plans. It's not just all model. It's not all rhino all the time. Uh, I want to insist on plans. The other thing about housing is that it sort of collapses the space, the intimate space of dwelling with the, the kitchen and the millwork and the relationship between the refrigerator and the stove. And the sink goes very quickly from the unit to the city. You know, there's almost no middle ground. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's something that's unique about the building type. It's, it's fine grain, it's intimate, it is where people's lives are lived. And I think that's important to recognize. In addition, it's part of a multiple. And so it sort of replicates, aggregates, multiplies in a particular pattern. Yeah, that's um, interesting. I mean, one of the functions of that, of that scalar difference is the ways in which individual people, consumers, purchase a commodity. Mm -hmm. And I think Miami is, is not alone in this regard, but it's specific in the ways that you engage with the real estate market. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, we did visit some show flats, you know, it's always interesting to see, you know, how architecture as real estate is, is bought and sold, um, how it's sort of positioned. 
And everyone was trying to imagine, you know, how would I live in this condition, which is, you know, just so foreign to some extent. Uh, mm -hmm. The other thing I should say is that half our students are from China. They're MAUDs. Half our, you know, some of our students are from all over this country. You know, we have Korean students. We have a student from Ghana. And one of the things we did the first day of meeting in the studio was like, what, what house did you grow up in? It was incredible to hear stories from some of these Chinese students that grew up in the countryside in a farm. Uh, one student sort of moved to Shenzhen and lived in a, in a warehouse. And then some of our American students who grew up in suburbs and had completely different ways of thinking about housing, not type, but just experience, extreme rural to extreme urban to, you know, to extreme suburban. So I, I think it's important also for us to acknowledge like the students working on these projects and what their memories are, how they're coming to this. And yeah, particularly building on the, the diversity, the globality, the kind of worldliness of the cohort, but also not taking for granted that the context is given, right? I mean, there's nothing about Miami that's from generation to generation has remained completely stable in that regard. It's always changing, new immigrant groups coming in. And at the same moment, Miami has been, in some ways, I think a kind of success story around preservation and conservation. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you have thought about this. I mean, my experience on, in doing some work on Miami Beach was that the success of South Beach and the idea of an alliance between preservation and design and the development community, which is maybe unlike the way that played out in other cities in the United States, has been received as successful mm. and has now been generalized to the point that quite a number of neighborhoods are essentially preserved intact at the wrong elevation, right? And, and so I wonder if in your work in Miami with your group of students, you'll be thinking about material assemblies and delivery systems as a, a part of that scope of work? Yeah, I would love to. Um, <laughs> there's only so much time in the semester, but that's certainly, you know, a, a huge interest of mine is like the material of architecture. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think those are some of the questions that I think Miami is going to grapple with. Yeah. You know, can you raise streets and have an incremental sort of raising mm -hmm. of the city? I was reading about Galveston, which sort of jacked up its buildings. Another great example. Another <laughs> of a different of a different building type, a different, you know, construction type. But I, I would be excited uh, to work with students on thinking about a kind of provisional architecture, mm -hmm. you know, something that might be able to be redeployed or might be able to be displaced. We did meet with a developer, a young developer named uh, Andrew Frey, a very interesting guy who spent five years working with the city to rewrite the zoning to allow for small-scale development to not provide off-street parking. You know, I spent five years <laughs> to get that change for this particular type, 10,000 square feet or less, not require parking, which unlocked a tremendous amount of real estate sites that were under undevelopable because of the parking requirements. And so I think he argued, I think, that if we remove that requirement, these sites could be developed, these smaller sites, because the Miami 21 seems to sort of gear itself towards larger parcels, large developments where parking can be consolidated. But he made a great case and he managed to build a series of projects. Very thoughtfully, he made the second floor at about 15 feet, much higher than would be normal. Uh, and his argument was, one day my ground floor is going to have to come up, you know. And so thinking like that, I think that's it's quite clever to imagine that the ground plane as we know it today might be provisional. And if we plan ahead, we can allow for some room there while retaining <laughs> the headroom clearances on, right. on the ground floor. So I mean, it's not uncommon in the American city that our you know, legal and policy frameworks are lagging behind. We're fighting the last war often, whether it's parking or density or height limits or relationships to transit or any number of other 
uh, measures. In that regard, you know, the physics of elevating are not, are not trivial, you know, not to mention the economics and the, the social disruption and questions of continuity of services and, and the perverse incentives of the differential impacts of this on various uh, elements within the community. Having said that, I think one thing that I've seen there is a sense that, well, the deco fabric in making its decision to make its ground floor height a certain dimension is already adaptable in a certain way. A lot of the Miami modern work is simply is not, right? Mm. And so, so part of that is, as you're referring to, building in a kind of contingency thinking that, that we're going to be living with change for, for a period of time and that these things are not insoluble. We can adapt, in fact. Yeah. You know, if we think about how difficult it is, it might become insurmountable. But if we can sort of focus on certain things, I think we could develop innovative strategies for managing some aspects, you know, not a wholesale tear down and restart, but a kind of agile approach to addressing you know, questions of ground plane, questions of clearance, questions of materiality. That strikes me as timely. I mean, especially given the the geography of South Florida, you know, as the limestone geology, all of these things mitigate against the kinds of solutions we see in the Netherlands or we see uh, post-Katrina, post-Sandy. And so I think for us, for our purposes, there's maybe no more interesting uh, laboratory for these questions right now than Miami, given the specificity of its horizontality and its history that you're referencing of being built through a kind of American dream, a kind of immigrant experience, but also through private development as mm -hmm. much as anything else. Yeah. It does seem like when we ask, like, you know, what's the mayor's position on this? Or, you know, is the mayor thinking about this? What's the government's role in this? It does seem like so much of the initiatives are private yeah. uh, individuals. Yeah. You know, the, history, the history of that part of the world is Land development and tourism are the two prime drivers of the economy. And that's gotten more interesting and complicated with other economies now in a global marketplace. Mm -hmm. And its status it strikes me as a fascinating place to do work. So you grew up in Colombia, as you mentioned. Yeah. And you, at some point, made a choice to, to be engaged in the dark arts of architecture. You, you, <laughs> at what point was it clear to you that cities were an interesting thing to think about or work on? Well, I grew up in Colombia in a very rural area. And then um, in high school, we moved to, to Bangkok, Thailand. Well, sure, so, yeah, of course. Um, super <laughs> urban. And so from one, you know, in the sort of pastures to the kind of exploding kind of metropolis of Southeast Asia. And it was exhilarating to live in Bangkok and see it sort of growing. Uh, and then I, I came to the States to study architecture. I'm not sure what moment I thought the built environment is what I want to do. But certainly it does change your, your frame of reference always, you know. I guess, you know, after graduate, I moved to New York City, which is another kind of choice to, to sort of be in the American sort of metropolis and, and experience that. So your childhood, your growth, your education was quite global to begin with. And so for you, the practice of architecture itself being global came as self-evident? Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, I mean, I was excited about the Asian building boom, you know, in the 90s. Uh, I think everybody was. And it didn't seem odd to me that that you would work on projects in New York for, for say, Hong Kong. Uh, my parents are still living in Bangkok, so it was also a great way to, to get back home regularly. But yeah, I think thinking about uh, world cities and what we can learn from other cities, right? that's one of my other sort of topics is, you know, can the American city not just export expertise, but actually bring concepts back. I do think learning from developments in, in Hong Kong and in China can help American cities uh, transform into a different paradigm. I think Hudson Yards is an Asian sort of building type built on transit with a high density development. 
that would feel just at home, you know, in Kowloon. But that's among the most favorable thing I've heard about Hudson Yards <laughs> or read in print recently. Yes. And so, so you, for the past number of years, you've been Boston based. Your practice, Howler Yoon, is here. So, mm -hmm. how, how do you come to be in Boston? <laughs> uh, I was living in New York, and Mijin, my partner, said, uh, You better move here because I'm starting a practice. She's been very busy, you know, without me um, <laughs> and, and done, you know, very well. You know, her first. Projects were done as MY Studio, Mijin Yun Studio, and I think she was very successful. So I joined a, an already sort of um, launched uh, enterprise. But I mean, we've we've had a very uh, productive time here. She was at MIT, being at the GSD. We we're diversified, mm -hmm. and I think we've tapped into both institutions productively for academics, but also now into Boston for practice. Mm -hmm. So. In addition to your, you know, pedagogical commitments, your your intellectual commitments, in addition to the, the research projects that you've referenced, uh, you're also building. Uh, you're interested in housing, uh, emergent or innovative technologies. So, so how does that span of interests manifest itself through architectural practice? Yeah, that's uh, that's tough. I mean, I would say we're kind of omnivorous, you know, in terms of our appetite for for design. You know, when we started, Mijin designed a defensible dress, which is a kind of microcontroller actuated wearable that defined sort of personal space, you know, so intimate scale of the body with technology. We probably ended doing a, a master plan for Audi, you know, for 5 million square foot headquarters. Uh, so from the microcontroller to the master plan, I think we've been sort of stretched a little bit in our interest. But I find like, you know, the concepts of the idea of, of a kind of interactive wearable or the concept of a kind of uh, strategy for mobility and development. I mean, those concepts, I think, are not scale specific. So, you know, what binds all this work together is, I think, a, a kind of careful study of the issues, a study of the, of the potential solutions, uh, and finding innovative solutions, whether technical or, or not. Our Collier Memorial at MIT looks at, at a vault, you know, which is not a, a cutting edge technology. It's not state of the art, but it took a kind of state of the artness to execute. So yeah, we're not specialized, but we're distributed. <laughs> you mentioned the Collier Memorial. There's a line of your work, Collier Yoon, in which you've been engaged in memorials, installations in the public realm, and projects that I think uh, hang together as kind of stimulating urbanity, if I could put it that way. Mm -hmm. Was that a conscious choice or was that the, the nature of the work that was available? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think any young practice does the work that's available. Um, and sometimes you speculate and sometimes you launch individual research projects. So one research project in 2008, there was no work. And uh, we watched the Greenway kind of emerging. Um, and the Rose, Rose Kennedy Greenway yes. in Boston? O yeah. Over the big dig? Over the big dig. And so we, we launched a kind of self-motivated research initiative. We wrote a Graham Foundation grant. We produced a book. You, you wrote us a nice... Uh, comment about the book, but this is kind of self-generated research work that produces a, a document. And actually that document we took to Audi to say, we're qualified to think about cities and, and um, mobility and infrastructure. Uh, and so that sort of um, led one thing to the other. Your practice is now engaged in housing projects in Boston and elsewhere. Tell us about those. Yeah. So, I mean, for a long time we were living in, and teaching in Boston, but not doing much work in Boston. And so um, I think Boston has a, a robust architecture culture. They're established firms doing a lot of work. It wasn't something that sort of came along, you know, very easily. A couple of years ago, we did have an opportunity to make a proposal for some some projects in Boston and discovered a whole 
sort of mechanism of uh, approvals and uh, of entitlements that seemed sort of daunting. And it is daunting. You know, it can take two or three years to get kind of what's called the Article 80 uh, process completed. Uh, so we're right now at the cusp of building a few sort of multifamilies, you know, 20, 25 story buildings in Boston. Uh, one at a kind of transit hub uh, in Somerville, which is the extension of the Green Line in Union Square. So that's kind of exciting to sort of spend so much time thinking about, you know, TOD and mobility as a kind of concept and then have it sort of become a project, kind of a fantasy actually, and then working with the city to, to get the approvals for that. Um, so it's a kind of theory practice sort of collapse in a productive way, I think. Mm-hmm. But we are, you know, we are starting to think about, you know, how to work in the city. And, and I think for the students, I think it's important to understand that, you know, the stakeholders, you know, it's not just your willpower, it's actually the, the developers' investment, the performa, the kind of city's sort of process and regulation. And so we spend so much time thinking about design and, and the form and the, the organization, but, you know, to, to such a large extent, it is about the way that it engages the neighbors through the approval process how it engages the, the context. And so I'm learning in parallel <laughs> with the students about this process, which is, you know, it's, it's fascinating and it requires a different set of skills. Uh, you could be a great, you know, uh, designer and a terrible public speaker and, and not be able to get anything mm-hmm. in a kind of public community process, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's been an incredible learning experience as well. So the role of the architect, the role of, you know, how are you in your practice in these projects is well beyond simply the the traditional role of, you know, design service and construction documents and specifications. Uh, your work seems central to contributing to the viability of the project by enabling their permitting, their public acceptance. Uh, and so say more about that and in that division of labor between yourself and the developers that you're working with. Yeah, it's interesting. When, when we started, uh, a developer said, write us a proposal. I said, okay, concept design, schematic design, design development, <laughs> you know, all the steps. Um, and he's like, what about entitlements? I'm like, entitlements, right, right. We need <laughs> I, a, don't, I don't need any, I'm good. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, need, uh, we need a phase for entitlements. And, you know, we kind of naively thought that, you know, $20,000 should cover whatever approvals we might need. Turns out, you know, the entitlements is the hardest part. And, you know, it's a multi-month process, you know, Mm -hmm. involving, you know, 30, 40 public meetings. And so that was eye-opening. But it's true. I feel like, you know, if you can't articulate a design to a a community, you know, where there is, there are people that are afraid of being displaced Mm -hmm. and they're angry. They're union workers that are standing in the back of the room, you know, asking if you're going to build at union. Like, so... This is the kind of the process of, of building in Boston. It's it's not what I trained to do in school, but but it's it's essential to to getting it done. I think architects are great communicators, and and being able to stand up and and listen to somebody who's concerned about this air pollution, you know, traffic, you know, these are the things people worry about. I know Hal Reuner doing work beyond Boston, beyond the locale. You're working internationally. And uh, what can you say that those experiences share with your with your work in Boston? Not much. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I mean, the, the context of, of China is so um, it's so interesting, you know, because, um, you know, clients are saying we want something really special. We want something really iconic and it can't be special enough, you know, and so. Everything has to be different. Everything yes, and there's a kind of hyper-articulation. And, and even when we say, you know, this is a foreground building, these are going to be background buildings, and we're going to simplify those. 
you know, at that point, not only the client, but the government officials say, you know, can we get more of a, a skyline, you know, and we're like, well, this is our backdrop. So there is a kind of desire for architecture to do more in certain contexts in China, do more uh, placemaking, do more, you know, icon making. Mm-hmm. Um, in- Instagram making. Instagram making, yes. Uh, and client said, we need something Instagrammable, you know, uh, it was it was the brief. Uh, so that is the desire for architecture there. And, and in the States, you know, sometimes people want something iconic and sometimes people want something, you know, just functional. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's important to be able to know when is when what is required uh, in each context and, and to be able to work with that. So we're doing a lot of housing projects in Boston that are that are fabric buildings, six story fabric buildings that fit into the neighborhood. They have a couple of beautiful details, but they're not calling attention to themselves. Maybe not brick. Maybe not brick. Uh, one brick. Mm. One brick building. Strange sort of atta- attachments to different materials. I mean, you could argue, you know, climate is culture, but also material is culture, you know. And so Boston has, has certain materials that are native and present. Eric, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.